Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Kristen Saxena. On today's episode, we're going to talk about feeding kids with PDA autism. On the show, we talk a lot about feeding kids and family meals, and a lot of the direction or suggestions and advice we give relate more to kids on a neurotypical spectrum. But what about those kids that maybe don't fit into those neat little boxes and experience a more neurodivergent life? We're joined today by our guest, Casey Ehrlich, who is the parent of one such child, and she shares what she's learned on her journey with her child. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Casey. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. I was really excited to talk to you today. Uh, we talked a while back. Uh, I was introduced to you through a mutual friend. And um, honestly, you know, as a pediatrician, and I'm sure you'll be able to speak to this even more, uh, we were talking about the diagnosis that your son carries, this PDA autism, and it was not something I was familiar with. So since I was not familiar with it, I'm going to assume a lot of our listeners also may be not familiar. So could you please, uh, as our resident expert, talk to sure. us a little bit about what, what is this PDA, pathological demand avoidance type of autism? Sure. So you are correct that in the DSM-5, um, this diagnostic category of pathological demand avoidance does not exist. Um, it does get diagnosed in the United Kingdom and Australia, and so a lot of the empirical research about it comes out of those two countries. Um, although there is a growing awareness here in the United States, um, and we just had the third annual PDA North America conference. so awareness is is raising around it um and research around it started in like the 1980s but i think a large reason that it hasn't been diagnosed or well understood in the u.s is because a lot of um a lot of what it looks like is really really bad behavior mm -hmm. <laughs> the expression of it so the way that i understand pathological demand avoidance and the name can be sort of a misnomer but the primary feature is um it's a nervous system disability where the individual's neuroception interprets a loss of autonomy or balance which means like equality to other people or things um as a threat to their bodily integrity Right, so in the same way that our bodies would respond and our nervous systems would respond if we had a lion in front of us, um, and we might fight, go into fight flight, or go into freeze, like total shutdown. This is what happens with my son and with other individuals or adults as well, um, when their brain perceives a loss of autonomy. And so if you can imagine this with a child, right, especially when they're younger, right, you have to set a lot of boundaries and rules around safety and learning how to be in the world. And 
And what you see sometimes can look like extreme opposition or defiance, which is like the fight expression. Um, so there's like a behavioral expression, but I think what makes it unique is that there, it also plays out in basic needs when there's an accumulation of overriding this threat response or if you're setting boundaries and there's this continual escalation. And of course, as a parent, you respond with traditional parenting strategies. Um, but there's always a cost, right? Because it's a nervous system response. And mm -hmm. so it can start to play out in basic needs where there's something called leveling or compensation behavior where the child, their nervous system is like autonomically trying to get back into balance. And so they might stop eating, they might stop toileting or have a regression or they might stop sleeping. Um, so you have behavior and basic needs. Mm -hmm. And for my son, this coalesced around, um, eating which is why i'm here yeah and um you know it is an expression of autism and but the i my perspective is that the nervous system aspect is the part that's a disability that's disabling and that sort of the sensory and social communication difficulties are mediated through that you know level of regulation anxiety and the threat response so you know, when my son is regulated, you might be like, oh, he seems pretty typical, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And with these kids, they're often high masking. So like you might see one version at school or with the grandparents and then like a total different version at home, which can make it really confusing as well. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I think it's easy to see then why it's been difficult to diagnose because even as you describe that you're exactly right i mean i think it, a lot of the things that maybe you might come to somebody as far as your concerns it does sound a lot like a maybe like a oppositional defiant type or other yeah. behavior type diagnosis and with that masking i think i would assume it's also even more difficult to kind of get under that um, sort of autism spectrum umbrella um, because a lot of those things might be contradictory to what you might see with what you'd consider sort of more classic autistic uh, characteristics or criteria yeah. for diagnosis. Um, so yeah, so can you, would you tell us a little bit then about your personal uh, experience in getting your or coming to this diagnosis with your son? Because like I said, I mean, as you told me this, I was like, I don't know how you even got here. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of, so my journey is kind of an extreme one, but I work with parents who end up in similar positions. So, um, you know, my son was an incredibly difficult child to regulate. He didn't really sleep or nap and was hard to soothe, but I thought it was just colic. And that you was know, like from infancy? Child. Oh yeah, from infancy. Um, you know, and there are subtle signs of like super alert and like, you know, sort of activated nervous system, but you're never gonna, you're never gonna be like, oh, my child is autistic because they, you know, won't sleep, right? So. Um, he was always a very difficult toddler in the sense of like, he did have that Jekyll and Hyde thing going on of like, I just felt like I don't know how to relate to him or connect to him or soothe him. And he seems to be much better at the grandparents or at school. I didn't know what masking was. So he was like, 
you know, seemed very happy there and really not happy at home. And, but he was still a toddler. So I was like, you know, I have a difficult toddler. Was it within the realm of normal? You're like, oh, terrible twos, terrible three, like all this sort of common vernacular. But at the same time, I was like, how is everyone just like living their lives with children? You know, I'd look around and be like, oh, look at them. Like they seem to be able to like do things outside of the house. And like, they're not super depressed and hating life and motherhood in the same way. Um, There was something going on, which now I can articulate, but like in order for my son to engage in anything like play, building, manipulating toys, reading, like I had to do it for him or alongside of him. And he could not like do anything independently unless he was at school, right? So this Mm -hmm. was the confusing part. So like, you know, we would build things and he would just destroy them. And he would, he would want me to like improv things and, but he wouldn't actually engage himself. It wasn't like reciprocal. And then, you know, but still coming out of toddlerdom, we had some strange things like where my parents came to visit and he stopped talking and pretended to be a dog for two weeks. And like, this is actually a strategy of avoidance. Um, and how old was he then, did you say? Three and a half. Three, 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 three and a half. Yeah, no, he was three. And then, <clears throat> you know, I thought maybe, oh, he might have ADHD. Like, he's he has two speeds. He's a sleeper in motion, and that was always true. Um, and then I had my second child, and things really started to escalate. And this is often a pattern you see in families where, like, there's a divorce or a move or... Um, a new child and then you can't give the child undivided attention because they need undivided attention all the time Um, and he really started escalating like he the masking started to not be sustainable for him so he's it's the behavior started to spill over into school my in-law my mother-in-law who lived in DC with us started to see what we saw Um, and he started to get pretty violent and um stopped eating and would say like i can't move i can't walk um he stopped making eye contact and sort of stopped speaking and like if we tried to engage him he would like attack us (laughs) and i would like run into the street with my newborn to get out of the line of fire um and i didn't know i had no idea what was going on you know it was a harrowing experience um i left my career at a large nonprofit in DC, I'm an academic by training. And I was just like, I can't live like this. Like I have two versions of myself and like my son is going to end up institutionalized, you know, like I, I considered taking him to the, um, psychiatric emergency room and talk to the pediatrician about it. And my mother-in-law was like, don't do that. Like bring him here. And cause I was afraid, like, something was going to happen. Like I was going to lose it or my husband was going to lose it or he was going to hurt the baby. Cause he would do things like I would turn away and he would put a pillow over the baby's face or scratch the eyeballs. And it was almost like, and it was an impulse. It wasn't him. It was like a very strange thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's very much a fight flight expression. There are kids who go into shutdown, which usually get flagged later. But often families come to a crisis point mm-hmm. and it's so it's not like they're like flagged in a pediatrician's office. And so I spent like 
you know, I left my job, we moved to Michigan so that I could um, not work for, it ended up being like two and a half years to stabilize him. And we worked through like a sensory processing lens for a while. And then, you know, when the pandemic happened, he was home with me and his younger brother. And it was like, you know, I was just like, something's off here. Like he, I tried to imitate like the, um, what he had been doing at school, like, you know, little laminated caterpillar moving through the day. And we had outdoor time, you know, and we were all quarantined and he would, he was just, he would fight me to the death on, on anything like going outside, moving from one activity to another, another brushing his teeth. And, you know, when we moved, I started to recognize like how much his eating fluctuated with stress. Mm -hmm. So when we moved, he was only eating um, Honey Nut Cheerios out of a particular bowl. And if it wasn't delivered in that bowl, he would like throw it in your face and scream. So it was really like feral animal type responses, which makes sense because it was his nervous system. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like bad behavior. Although in the moment, I was like, my kid's a demon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I actually, his occupational therapist here in Ann Arbor, um, had done a training at the Star Institute, which is like in Denver and the premier sensory research space. And they had had an adult PDA autistic woman named Christy Forbes. Check her out if you're interested. She's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, giving a training on PDA autism and she was like she came back from that training and was like I think you need to look into this and I was like I can't look into anything else I'm too tired yeah. I like um and so I started reading about it and it was like a light bulb moment which a lot of parents describe um but it was also terrifying you yeah. know um and then we, I found another mother in the area through the occupation, actually not through the occupational therapist. I posted on Tilt Parenting, which is another great resource if you have differently wired kids. And I was posting about a service dog on their Facebook. Like, does anybody know anything about service dogs? My kid is presenting in this way. I'm in Michigan. And she reached out and she was like, I don't know anything about service dogs, but where are you in Michigan? And then we ended up being 20 minutes from each other with wow. similar kids and we found each other and she had just been to the, the first conference in Chicago and we ended up being really good friends and we found like 10 other families in the Ann Arbor area and then um, she and I started a podcast and that's like how this all started. Yeah. Well, yeah, first so of all, like, I mean, my heart goes out to you because like thinking about this whole, obviously as I speak with you, I can hear like your whole focus um, was on getting the help you needed for your family and for your child. But also as I listen, I just think so much about your own experience as a mother. And like, it's just, I, I can only imagine just the difficulty and the stress and um, the amount of like mental anguish that goes into not only the experience, but so many un answered questions um, as you must have gone through this and um, just this sort of leap of faith that you're taking like you said leaving your career leaving your home um, and th those are a lot of big changes for a family that's already you know maybe 
having a lot of questions or, or having a lot of stresses, um, but also just like the, is this going to be better? Is this going to be worse? That's hard, right? Um, yeah. So then can you talk, talk to me a little bit like, you said you were kind of more of thinking like you were working with maybe your doctor or therapist in terms of thinking that maybe this was a sensory processing situation. That was when you were in DC. Yeah. So I have a dear friend, um, a dear friend from college who is an autism specialist and she runs her own play therapy. So her name is Lauren Stern. I'm just going to plug it. Yeah, man. Name drop. (laughs) So she saved my life. So I'm going to plug it. She is an awesome person and just like knows all about sensory and floor time um, and, and more behavioral approaches to autism. So she was like, fly to Chicago. I'm going to set you up with like speech language pathologists and, and uh, occupational therapists that I've worked with that I trust. And like, I stayed with her for four days and she and her son and daughter. um, And she basically like taught me, everything not about pda autism but just like like i didn't even know what sensory processing disorder was i i personally don't have like sensitivity so i was like what do you mean they feel pain with like a strong sound i was i was very new (laughs) yeah um so she gave me that lens of like going in a different direction from like a behavioral approach and incorporating play and sensory stuff which was like for a year sort of like how I was getting back to having some sort of connection with my son. So like um, we're doing occupational occupational therapy intensively. And also I sort of learned or taught myself how to do play therapy with him. So I would like do an hour to an hour and a half a day of like just getting on the ground and like following his lead and like a lot of it was like pretending to be baby puppies or like throwing stuffies at him and like working through that connection piece which I think you know is key because no matter what I read I I needed to understand him as a unique child and Mm -hmm. and so once I'd worked through that and like you know we were on the wait list for the autism evaluation and all that with the pediatrician um that was when there was still something going on. And I was like, nothing explains this. Yeah, did you find um, that a lot of the things they were recommending for therapy were actually counterproductive? You know, in my case, no, because I had that trusted person who guided me towards non-behavioral approaches. And, and she had seen how the behavioral approaches we were taking were failing miserably, right? like. You know, I was doing the um, one, two, three magic and the timeouts and the, you know, natural consequences of positive discipline and all the things that like, and my pediatrician in DC was like, well, here's this support group for difficult children and you need to be stricter. And like, you know, it just continually escalated to a point where I was like, this not only is it isn't working, like my son has tipped into like, um, a different state where he's like animalistic and like I don't know what to do and I'm scared mm-hmm. and so she gave me the permission to be like well there's this other way 
you know, and I had never thought about it because I didn't think my kid was neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. And like the a lot of the parenting culture we have is on compliance and reward sanctions. And, and you think that if that doesn't work, you're doing something wrong or your kid's bad. Um, and so, and because he didn't get an early autism diagnosis, I was never presented with applied behavioral therapy, which is much more the reward sanction. And so I think some families who get an earlier autism diagnosis try those traditional approaches for autism, but it backfires, then find PDA as well. And so then, and he, your son is seven now, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so then, but he, how, how old was he then when you moved? Three? He was... Four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. And what made you decide, like, because that's a huge decision. You're like, I'm I, I'm not going to work. We're out of here. It sounds like you had family maybe in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. Oh, you're from yeah. Michigan. I'm okay. from Michigan. We moved to the small town in Michigan where my sister lives. Um, you know, it happened faster than I thought. Like within two weeks of me leaving my job, my husband had a job offer, which was not what we had planned on. Um, but, you know, the reason I left my job, it, it wasn't much of a choice. It was like, I was like, I can't show up to lead a team and like be crying in the bathroom <laughs> in my heels and suit and like pretending to be together because I'm not and my life is falling apart. So, um, I had to leave that and that would have been a harder decision if I, if it was like not crisis mode. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we all have the constraints of like finances in DC. Like mm-hmm. if both parents don't have careers in most fields, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to afford sorry. living there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I, totally. <laughs> so so we were, and I, I always missed Michigan and like, I felt like a slower pace of life and more space was going to be easier for us. Like, I'll give you just a concrete example. Like when I would try and like go places with my son, he would like go into flight and like run, right? Mm-hmm. Like he'd run into the street, he'd run in a parking lot. And here, like I can go to a place where the parking lot is empty. So I'm like a little bit less. He no longer does that, but like I just needed space and safety, and I felt like I could get it more closer to family and closer to a slower pace of life and just like more Midwestern space, I guess. Yeah. Of like he can run in the street, but there's no cars, so it's okay. Absolutely. No, I totally understand. I mean, I think sometimes being in the medical field, it was always like counterintuitive to us in the sense that it's like. You always think, well, you need all these resources. So we would get, you know, even in Nebraska, we would have often like people that lived, you know, way out far away from the city. And I always thought, wow, shouldn't you move to the city because you have to come get all of your resources in the city? But I think that that really overlooks like, yeah, it's nice to be able to see specialists that are probably not, you know, in rural areas. But on the flip side, the 
the life that you're creating in the in the rest of the days of of life is <laughs> far right. more important. And so I think that that's an important thing to consider too, because I would always think like we'd have all these special needs kids, and I'd be like, just move, just move to the city. <laughs> Why? Um, or when they're screaming bloody murder because they're having a panic attack, and you're like, I'm so glad the neighbors can't hear this. <laughs> right, right. Right. I mean, the there's a lot be showing of, up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's real. It's real. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that that's a very important point from someone living it um, that makes a lot of sense and I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people too. Um, so the other thing I was going to say was, um, can you also, well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about, and I know it's probably significantly underdiagnosed, so these numbers are, are not accurate, but just to give us an idea of like how common is PDA autism within the general population and then within autism itself oh this is a tough question question. i I won't hold you to it but your understanding uh do you want the short answer answer? either one (laughs) okay the short answer i think is that it's grossly under recognized and misdiagnosed but i also think that's true for autism Mm -hmm. and part of that is because of how the dsm has changed but um our understanding of what autism is and the connotations we have is changing so much. So I did a training with a specialist in, in London, virtually, and she thinks that maybe like one out of 10 autistic individuals. That's actually pretty high. Yeah, but, but you know, it's so hard to mm-hmm. to identify because there are so many different ways the nervous system expresses. Mm-hmm. And there are so many in the neurodiversity movement, so many like self-diagnosed or self-identified autistics. And so that's like a shifting target. Um, but I guess I'll just say like, my mother-in-law had this question when I made the podcast of like, are there other kids like this? But like, and I didn't know, but we have like, lots of people contacting us all the time. Mm-hmm. I found 10 other families in my part of Michigan in my age group and more keep coming. And then I have a wait list for my coaching. So like, it can't be that rare, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that as, you know, I think we always said like in our, in our lifetime, the diagnosis of autism itself has obviously increased substantially. And then everybody's always got these questions like, is it really more common or are we just getting better at diagnosing it? And I think it's probably maybe both is usually the answer that people will give, although it's very difficult. But at the same time, too, I think we're so just still in the infancy stages of understanding, Um, you know, and even understanding right now we kind of have this umbrella of this autism spectrum disorder or like pervasive development issues. Um, But are these all even under the same umbrella really? And I I don't know if um, maybe somebody does have more information or better understanding of that, but I think we're just so at the infancy, which I think is why it's so great that you're able to kind of share your story and what what you're learning because it really also speaks to your experience that what we need is is this like people need this village really i mean think in, yeah. in of nothing else like you're talking about what a lifeline it was even to come across this person on 
on Facebook who was near yeah. you and having this sort of sim or not Facebook on your on tilt and well it was a Facebook You're oh correct. it was a Facebook okay yeah one of <laughs> some sort of like online but social tilt media group on Facebook uh, okay so, so anyway but I'm just like just having that right now I think is so important for parents and I think your the coaching that you do but even just creating a space for creating connections and community for people who are dealing with this i would think like you had mentioned you know in those kind of situations you start to feel like is it me like am i crazy <laughs> what's going on you know am i perceiving this wrong or am i doing something wrong and when you're not getting the answers that you you know, like you said, I think the masking seems like it makes it really difficult because people aren't even seeing the same thing that you're seeing. Yes, um, yeah. And it's pretty unique, really. Not a lot of conditions because people will say, well, you know, if they're capable of X, Y, Z, then it must be something that is unique to this environment or unique to the way mm -hmm. that we're responding. Um, so obviously we want to move to feeding and how yes. how that has been different and how food has really been central to sort of the expression that you're seeing or you have seen in your son and I really wanted to talk to you because obviously on our show you know a lot of the experts I meet with a lot of the advice I give myself um I want to be clear. I mean, it's really generally for, for the neurotypical child and strategies that you can use that for a child who's, who's more neurotypical can generally lead to success. But I always like to say, you know, as a parent, you, you are the greatest observer of your child. You got to trust your intuition and you really have to be the greatest advocate for your child. And if you truly feel like, you know, I've done all of these things and this is not working or even counterproductive, um, you know, that I believe is the experience that you had. And so I want to not only honor that as existing in the world and that it's very important to recognize that, but also here, I mean, how does that look from someone who's lived it? So please tell me what feeding your son has looked like oh. over time. Man, oh man, it's a big question. Um, well, you know, I had all these visions and expectations as a mother, like we all do. Oh, the like, more expectations you have, I always say too, like the farther they're going to fall from. Yes. Those, right? Um, like it's all going to be organic, scratch cooked from the farmer's market. <laughs> a thousand percent. And yeah. that's actually what I did like in the beginning. So like he, you know, he was breastfed and you know for the first year as you pediatricians recommend and he was really an amazing eater now i understand that he was eating way beyond hunger because he is an oral regulator and that's a common thing among these kids like my son as an accommodation still uses a pacifier even though he's seven when he's home um so oral regulation is an indicator just for the listeners um and you know he wasn't a terrible eater as a toddler like I did the like no sugar you know no grains no not a lot of dairy we also did like baby led weaning like I did all the things right and yeah. like I like to eat healthy myself um and then you know as I said there was a change in the dynamic in the home he had started to get quite a bit more picky but like not to the extent that I was worried about like caloric intake and nutrition and again like he was three so I was like well kind of typical behavior yeah 
Dr. Prager's like, you know, spinach, you know, spinach chicken nuggets, but there's some spinach in there, right? Like that type of thing. And it seemed within the distribution of typical. Um, and then, as I mentioned, like things really started to escalate. And my anxiety drove me to respond to my son with, um, you know, you have to sit at the table. You can't have anything else until you eat this. Um, and just trying to make him eat. And, and the more I did that and the more stress occurred like the more he resisted and but like running from the table you know having a flight response um he start he would gag or vomit um and it sort of escalated into the like beyond what the books say will happen <laughs> i'm like uh um yeah and so i i honestly think that because of his sensitive nervous system and my response to it he experienced trauma around eating and, and so that's been like a very delicate balance since then, since our crisis. Um, and, you know, I remember when we moved to Michigan, when he was in that Honey Nut Cheerios phase, and I didn't understand, like, I didn't know it was about autonomy. I thought it was about sensory. And so I would like, I remember going to Myers. I don't know if you have Myers in Omaha. No. It's like a big chain of supermarkets and like just going through the aisle of like Ensure and like all the different chocolate and cake flavored um, zone bars and protein bars. Because I, I was just like, oh, my gosh, like he's not eating. He's mm -hmm. literally not eating. Um, and his sensory stuff. And this happens when the nervous system is activated with these kids like they their sensory stuff goes way up. So like I would eat something near him and he would vomit. Um, so he couldn't even eat at the table. And we started having to use an iPad to like reduce his sensory input. And like the only way he would eat would be like under a blanket with an iPad and I would have to deliver it to him. Um, and still like, still he has a pretty difficult time eating. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'll give you an example, like right now, and this is common for autistic children to have like five to six safe foods. And I've done my own coaching with adult autistics who give a different perspective. So like, you know, they don't view it necessarily as a problem as long as the kid is growing. And that's sort of what the pediatrician said in a way, but, but what the five to six things were for my son and R just felt so wildly non-nutritional, like, <laughs> Like right now he's eating Lay's potato chips, popcorn, um, pirate's booty, gummy snacks, and granola bars. Like one kind of, one brand, one kind, one flavor of granola bar. And then we um, encourage him to eat apple slices, non-organic, Honeycrisp, and he might eat a little bit of that. And... He just started eating some Faye yogurt and like chewing on some steak. But in order to get him to that point, we had to really let go because the more our anxiety and expectations around it increased, the less willing he was to eat. Mm -hmm. So it was like, and we worked through a sensory lens again before we understood the autonomy and nervous system piece. And he you know, he would make progress and he'd try new foods in food school, which is like, you know, a 32 step process for exposure, like where the first thing you do is like, you might just like be using a toy hammer to like 
crunch things on yeah. the table, like very inoffensive things like Cheez-Its. Like we're not talking like a salad. <laughs> and so, and then like- They're very know, offensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for- No, I totally know what you're saying. I just love that. <laughs> You know those offensive salads. I do. I'm so. highly offended. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, most five-year-olds don't eat salad, but yours does. I saw it in your Instagram. Uh, <laughs> well, but like I, sometimes some do, but I hear you. Uh, yes. But I'm very interested to hear this because I, I am curious, like sort of the methods that work and how maybe some are the same and some are different from what we might suggest. Because even, and I don't mean to interrupt you because I really want you to continue this story, but even as you described it, you know, those early days where you kind of feel like maybe that created some of the traumatic experience he had around eating and you're you felt like you're I mean I thought you articulated it super well when you're you're realizing or self-aware now that it was your anxiety creating this um situation where you were kind of coercing or or pressuring him which came from a place of love but also generally comes from parents own anxiety and I think this is true for most parents with most kids is where we try to get them to eat period and get them to eat what we want them to eat um Mm -hmm. and and that even for neurotypical kids becomes a power struggle often and ends up doing more harm than good in the long run because you won't you know eventually even even with them it's a neurotypical kid it's an autonomy issue and they realize Mm -hmm. that they're going to win. Like it's very difficult to actually make someone eat something. And so that really spoke to me in the sense that it was easy for me to see how even for a neurotypical kid, this becomes a little bit of a power struggle and autonomy issue. And so then for a child where that is heightened much more, I can definitely see how that became a a big issue. Um, So I'm very curious to hear then kind of how things have progressed and what you've found has worked best um, because Certainly, like the more hands-off approach is generally still what we would recommend in those situations. But obviously, for you, it, it sounds like you know you've had to kind of chart your own path and do things a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to understand the mechanism of like what's actually going on, and you know, it's different. All of us want autonomy, and all of us want to not be sensorily offended. And there's a spectrum, right? Like I don't want my parents, I didn't want my parents forcing me to eat things that I found gross and I didn't want it to feel like boot camp at my meals. Um, I think, you know, when we identify a child with sensory issues, we want to accommodate that to the extent possible and know like they can actually feel pain or disgust. So not pressuring on those points, those specific ones. And then with a child who's demand avoidant or PDA, I think the autonomy piece is non-negotiable. And so some of the ways that we sort of came back from not eating anything, um, first, I mean, as you said, like the first thing I needed to do was let go and like manage my own anxiety and just be like, I do not have control over this situation. All I can control is myself and I can you know, I can't change his nervous system. And so, you know, I think the occupational therapy with the play element continued, but he would add something and then drop it because he was exerting control. Um, 
I tried at home to introduce more like play and pleasure into eating. So like we would do things to sort of disrupt that association. So like instead of having him eat at the table at a certain time, I would like pour chocolate milk when he was still drinking it, but I tried to put powders in it. And so he stopped, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, put it into like a a wine glass that wasn't going to break. And like, we would do a picnic up in his room and just like changing the association around it. Um, lowering demands about, about how he showed up to eat. So like for us, our primary goal was like eating. So we let go of like etiquette and sitting at the table and times of the day, which can be really hard. But if it's a matter of health and safety, it's like, well, do I really care about him sitting at the table or do I really care about him getting enough calories? Mm -hmm. Um, And I often, to lower the threat response, deliver him food without speaking. So it's like an offering or what, parents talk about in this homeschool community of like strewing, which is like putting out things without even mentioning it. And that allows for maximum autonomy to sort of like gravitate towards a buffet of options. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's like some of the stuff we've done that has been helpful. So do and you- telling him I will never force you to eat anything. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably good advice for anyone (laughs) yeah (laughs) but um so at this point uh like are you able to eat together like I know you had talked about sometimes he eats you know under his blanket with his iPad so I assume he's solo in that scenario most of the time but then other times where you've been able to kind of like picnic up in his room or like what's what's is there a typical scenario for you guys in your house or or where are you at with that right now? Yeah, I think so. We made a mindset shift of again, like offering, like this is an offering. So like when I was still coming out of crisis, I couldn't even manage to get like meals on the table. I was eating frozen meals and like giving my kids food where they were. My, my younger son would sit at the table. Um, but I had two dear friends from Columbia from my field research because my past life I was an academic and did work in Columbia, Latin America, and they like were lived in a conflict zone. And I, I was like, I am going to die. Like I need help. And I needed someone who wouldn't judge the extremity of the responses of my child or like our home life. And they somehow the stars aligned and like one flew from Australia, one flew from Columbia in the height of the pandemic and the election year, my husband works um, for the Department of State in Michigan. So it was like, he was really focused on the elections. Uh, And so they literally saved my life. But what they did, they were like helping me cook and they would be like, we're just going to set a place for him and we're going to eat every night. Like they decided this to help me as like... (laughs) my mothers you know they're older than me and um we set a place and we would set out preferred food for him and at first he'd like run over from the from the couch and like grab something we'd set out and then like by the end of their time there we had more of a routine and he would choose often to come sit with us and granted he would bring his ipad but like we would also 
he would have us do like drawing contests like from the iPad like we'd all draw the same thing and like he started to associate the table and meal times with like family and fun and peace mm-hmm. and my husband and I have worked pretty hard to continue to have a set meal time especially at dinner and cooked food um and we have an au pair from Colombia so we're continuing the theme and we eat with her every night and he often will come down or not be ready to go to bed and he'll have like a second dinner with us at the table so that's amazing I mean that I would think as a parent obviously you know I'm obsessed with like family meals but like so it just warms my heart I mean it must be so nice to like have him associating that with like such positivity as a change um and for you too like just to have it be a little bit more peaceful and not so anxiety provoking every day yeah yeah well i i've let go of like whether or not he comes to the table and in doing that he often chooses to do so because he know he senses that he has autonomy mm-hmm. um but that's like a huge leap of faith right of just yeah. letting go of control and being like okay we'll see what happens <laughs> so then the other question i have is then how do what's the typical scenario in which like a new food comes into his life because you kind of talked about right now his his five foods are are these things but it sounds like that changes over time so what's kind of a typical scenario where something is sort of introduced into the into the list yeah so there's probably three three ways that it happens like one is a friend from school will have something and he'll see that they're eating it and he'll be interested it'll pique his interest the other is um you know as he gets older and more self-aware and we talk about pda and his nervous system all the time um the more he's starting to understand not from an emotional or sensorial level like a cognitive level of like if i don't eat this i won't have energy and therefore i need to try <laughs> like he's not motivated to do it for me mm-hmm. because and i think that's part of his autistic expression um but he's like starting to understand more like energy and protein and muscles and a lot of it he learns on his ipad to be frank Mm -hmm. um and then we continue to do food therapy feeding therapy um with his wonderful occupational therapist and you know we play games where we'll pick up i'm in the therapy so as a service dog it's like you know it's kind of a party (laughs) (laughs) like we'll play games where we'll pick up something with our mouth and like walk across the room and spit it into a bowl and like have little competitions and i make a fool of myself and like we don't talk about food in normative ways of like this is a good food this is a bad food or this is you know gross or good it's like you know this is crunchy and green and and very like just Just very objective yeah yeah and and sometimes like because he's regulated because he's just spent like a half an hour on a hammock swing and crash pad and like you know all the sensory input he's regulated in his body so he's open to experimenting a little bit and it fluctuates but you know, sometimes like he just asks for carrots and pepperonis this week because 
it came up in his food therapy and he tasted it and realized he liked it. But, you know, it really fluctuates. It's like a very, like how I think of his development with food and a lot of other things is like, it can feel like this infinity symbol of like, we move forward, we move back, we move forward, we move back. But it's like on this like really shallow linear path of like little by little, he's he's getting to a different place. And I think as he gets older and understands more the science, like he'll be motivated. And that's what he... Like, that's the only thing that works is mm-hmm. if he wants to do something, if he has autonomy. So, mm-hmm. well, so we're just patient. <laughs> God bless you, for sure. Well, and then the other thing I always think, so you have a younger son. And is it difficult? Because honestly, a lot of the things that you're explaining, particularly with the feeding, um, are sort of this more, like we talked about, more hands-off, more autonomy left for the child. I think as I'm listening, to me, it's more like the the pushback or the negative consequences of not being that way are so much more amplified for your son than maybe for a more neurotypical child. But the actual sort of mindset to me is is really similar for what might create that sort of autonomous, peaceful situation for for a more neurotypical child, which your younger son, does he have any other sort of uh, diagnoses or does he... He or is he not. just okay? So then um, I think, like, how, what is that like parenting both of them? Because I think that there, my guess is there's some strategies that you use that you find are super useful for both your children. And then there's other things where I think, I mean, as having four kids, like the mm-hmm. idea of something being unfair or not the same is legitimately like a real conversation that happens multiple times a day, every day at my house. How do you navigate having one child that's neurodivergent, one that's not, and then yeah. having to change your parenting styles without, you know, yeah, one blowing up yeah. that it's not fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is really difficult, um, both in my household, but also for other parents. And I think the key point is that one of my children has a disability and one does not. And so, you know, reminding myself of that, reminding my husband or him reminding me of that, and also communicating it with our children. Um, So my young three-year-old will ask me questions like, um, why does Cooper get screen time now? Or, you know, why does Diesel, our service dog go in the car with him to school and you know I try and talk to him about disability and nervous systems and differences and you know some of it might register but most of it probably doesn't and so we have lots of meltdowns and I have to manage that yeah um but I'm creating hopefully a family culture of equity not equality just because they're not the same um I think specifically to your question though it's really really hard in practice right like some days i'm too tired to hold the boundary with my younger son and i just let him eat the same crap (laughs) yeah well i think that's every every younger child's like lifestyle for an extent like at some point they're just like why does you know my seven-year-old be like why does he get to do that i'm like because he's 13 and then eventually i'll just be like just do it i'm tired so i assume it's like even that more difficult for you but I, i related to that and i thought oh my gosh like like that's that's yeah. difficult for anyone but in those particular situations especially with a younger child where these are very complex 
high level concepts to understand, which on one end, I feel like there's something in children that can somehow inherently um, Mm -hmm. understand those things a little bit better than even an older child. But on the flip side, there's other things where it's it's very it's a too complicated of a concept sometimes for a young kid to really fully grasp. Yeah, absolutely. I think my younger son does implicitly or intrinsically get that there is different there's a difference but in the moment when he doesn't want to sit at the table or eat more healthy food uh it can depend on my level of regulation how well i keep the boundary and i will say my au pair has been fantastic with this because when my older son cooper is at school she does not allow screens during um meal times and they cook together and she somehow gets him to eat like rice and beans and different different things that I think he wouldn't eat for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because I was somewhat traumatized by setting really hard boundaries with my older son. And so even though I know that my younger son's three-year-old reactions are developmentally appropriate, it like triggers in me like I'm going to traumatize him. So it's complex for sure. Yeah. I mean, feeding, it seems like something so simple, but I think it's just so ingrained and psychologically and emotionally more important and more relevant than we even realize. And so uh, I really, I, my heart goes out to you, but I understand what you're saying. Um, So this has been lovely. I feel like it's been super educational for me. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I want to make sure anybody who maybe some of this resonates with or are considering that they may be dealing with a diagnosis or know that they have a diagnosis of PDA autism, I certainly want to have everybody check out all of your resources. You do coaching. You said you have a wait list now, so I'm very popular with coaching, but um, so at Peace Parents is your your website, your Instagram, and you do a podcast, PDA Parents. So we have two, there's two resources. One is more of a like community advocacy and podcast, which is with my dear friend and colleague, and that's called PDA Parents. So we have like a list of all the practitioners in the U.S. who are working in this field um, and resources that are PDA friendly. It's all free. So, and there's writing on there and parents are invited to contribute if that's of interest. Um, And that is also an Instagram Uh, PDA parents and then yes my business is at peace parents and I do personalized coaching and also I do have um, some group coaching cohorts a connection cohort that I run almost monthly so it's at a lower lower price point if anybody's interested (laughs) absolutely yeah and I think finally you know what I wanted to ask you was you know what is your advice for parents? Maybe they don't know if they're dealing with PDA or autism at all, but they just feel like they're in a place where, um, you know, they're not finding that the traditional uh, avenues or maybe the the help that's being suggested for them it doesn't seem to be helping. What what's your suggestions for parents that are maybe sort of in that situation? Yeah, I think like. 
what I say to a lot of my clients, and this is based in my previous life, is like it's an empirical question. It's not a philosophical one of just like, yeah, for most kids it can work like this and like values have, you know, been born out of what the societal norms are. But like if it's not working for your kid, like follow your intuition and engage in trial and error and don't judge yourself. Like it doesn't mean just because the books aren't applicable to your child that your child or you are wrong. It just means like you might need to write a different book (laughs) (laughs) because it hasn't been written yet. Um, And just, you know, speak your truth. Like you'll find other people who are hiding behind the shame of what this is of like, you know, the external indicators looking like you're a terrible parent of, you know, my kid only eats potato chips and screams in my face in public isn't something that people like to broadcast, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's part of neurodiversity and development. And, and then the other thing I would say is focusing on connection, you know, incorporating more play and more connection time with your kid and like even talking about it. Like, I notice you're having trouble at dinner. I wonder if there's anything we could do to make it easier. Mm -hmm. See what they say. (laughs) I love it. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Absolutely. We'll chat soon. 